Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to uh, an extra special episode of Man on the Post. Uh, I am Chris, I'm your host. With me I've got Alex, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, how are you? Grand, thank you very much. It's seven. Good. We've got a pre-Christmas day tomorrow because the in-laws are down, but they go home on Saturday. So as we record this on Thursday, I'm about to have two Christmas days. That, I mean, who can argue with that? Exactly. Well, my, my uh, cholesterol probably, but other than that, all uh, is good. It, it's the season for that though, isn't it? Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, with me, I've got a very, very special guest here. Uh, we have got the author of 31 Nil, uh, When Friday Comes, journalist for the New York Times, uh, BBC World Football Correspondent, James Montague. How you doing? Really well. How are you? I'm all right. I've got a cat attacking me at the moment. I'm sitting in a cafe in Belgrade. And this, uh, it's got a cat and it's attacking me. <laughs> oh. I guess there's not much more to say about that. <laughs> Did I miss anything off that list? Sorry? Did I miss anything off that list I introduced you with? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of writing for the Bleacher Report at the moment uh, as well. They've they've got. I don't know if you've seen um, any, have read any of their stuff because I mean the Bleacher Report's always been in the past something of a kind of like a blogging platform and like a kind of crowdsourced kind of place to find news. But they've really invested in kind of longer form journalism. They did a brilliant piece the other day about finding Ali Deer, the the mysterious. Um, epiphical tale of him playing a few minutes for Southampton. Uh, Alex is a Southampton years ago. fan, aren't you? I oh, am well. indeed. Yes. There you go. I mean, it was uh, you know much has been written about about him, and you know, and they they actually kind of hired a very uh, great uh, journalist who never really writes about sport to track him down, and um, eventually they did, and found his family. Went to Senegal, I think, is where his family's from, um, and it was the first person to ever, you know, find out what was happening to him. There's a few stories around the 20 year anniversary of like who he was, how he got there, all these kind of. You know, he he wasn't a, f- a footballer at all, but he was. He turned out he was a pretty talented footballer, had played in various different stages of French football. Um, you know, it was quite a sad story in the end, you know, about how he's, you know, he, he kind of got into hiding because of all these kind of rumours and, and how his name had become almost a synonym for for, for, <laughs> for criminality in football. And uh, he was, uh, yeah, and it was, it was just great. So the Bleach, I started writing for them and doing some stuff for them, uh, which is kind of strange. They never, the longer form stuff, you know, often it's magazines that are the only ones have the resources for it. But they're, they're, to their credit, they're really kind of um, investing in it. So, uh, so that's yeah. Just the, a couple of months ago, did something on Kosovo. So spent some time with the Kosovo team. Yes, sort during the first in, international. You were in Finland, weren't you? I was in Finland, but I'm, I'm being. I'm, I'm, the plan is uh, next book but one to, to write about Finland's first kind of World Cup campaign. That's uh, so for Finland's uh, Kosovo's because it's a story I've been following since 2012. And uh, seeing how they've gone from, you know, I mean, the first time I met the, the, the kind of FA was in a cafe in Zurich um, when they had a petition. that They were trying to get the Swiss team to sign because Switzerland were playing Albania in a World Cup qualifier. <coughs> so the majority of the players were from Kosovo. I wrote about this in 31-0, actually. And, uh, you know, it just was like, I mean, when, when you're writing a petition for things, you know, often it means that you, you literally have no other 
form of recourse. You've got no, you've got no other way of making change happen. And so, you know, I end up going with their meeting Shakiri, uh, Granite Jacker, all the uh, Valambar army, and they're all, you know, they back the fact that they should have a national team. Um, and then from there to have them, you know, to this game in Finland, which is an incredible journey, you know. Um, and then, I mean, it's gone a bit pear shaped since then. I mean, some pretty heavy defeats. And I was with them in in Croatia and uh, sorry in uh, Albania when they lost six nil. But you know, I mean, it's often used as a cliche when I see at the end of the uh, end of an article, I almost groan like, oh, you know, but it doesn't matter about the result. I mean, in this case, it's actually true. I mean, this is their they're just getting experience, and I think very few people in Kosovo thought they might ever see this day happen. But you know, it's happened. So there'll be, um, I think, the next March, Iceland, Iceland, Kosovo. In Reykjavik, is there anything more hipster than that? Actually, no, I think it'll be in Albania. Actually, I think it'll be the first. It'll be a home game, but they're they're not playing any of their games in Kosovo. So they don't have a good enough stadium yet. It's still being rebuilt. So it'll be full of people so, yeah. with tattoo sleeves that wear pork pie hats indoors. Well, I mean, to be honest, it, this global culture of hipsterism is. I mean, I'm I'm sitting in a cafe in Belgrade. They're very much kind of the epicenter of that, uh, and you see it everywhere. I mean, everybody's kind of spread this kind of global culture of stuff. I suppose in the same way that people wearing. Metallica or um, you know Nirvana t-shirts back in the day spread spread around the world. So yeah, I mean even in Pristina you see sleeve tattoos and some pretty luxuriant beards as well. <laughs> um, actually, well, I was going to ask you because we did our podcast the other day. Uh, we did some <coughs> cheating guilty pleasures. So for our listeners, um, a pair of you can do this if you want to. Your cheesy guilty pleasures from back in the day. Three of them. Cheesy guilty pleasures. I mean the. I often find that these kind of codes, like they're, they're also the only songs that I can do on a uh, karaoke night. So there's there's two karaoke songs I do that I, wh- one of them, what well, I haven't done for a while because it went down so badly I stopped doing it, is You Make Me Wanna by Usher. But what, I mean, that, what a tune that is. Remember that? You make me wanna move and run away, start a new relationship with you, that is what you do, yeah. <laughs> I, f- uh, I feel like he's so here on <laughs> you should see me dancing. Uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. And then uh, a babe by Take That. Babe, and babe, what, what a tune? Babe by Take That. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, babe, but with a slight. I mean, with a obviously with a, a slight speech impediment as well. So Mark <laughs> Owen singing it. But um, there's that. So that's that's a beautiful little uh, little ditty. And I, I it, I'm not sure if this is cheesy, but I think kind of. Emo bands are considered pretty cheesy. So, if, like, I tell people I still listen to kind of Funeral for a Friend's first album. Oh, oh that's, that's actually snorted. not bad. It's, which is which is pretty. I mean, I love. I, 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 quite, I quite like the second album as well. Casually, no, Casually Dressed in Deep Conversation was the first one, wasn't it? Yes, the second it was. one was uh, something else. But I, 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 I still have a soft spot for Blink One Eight Two, and there's a song called <laughs> Damn It. They Damn it, by Blink-182, which is, uh, which I think that can go in the cheesy bin, I think. That can go in, in my cheese bin, along with the other two. Alex, you're too cool for cheesy songs, aren't you? No. I no don't one's even, too cool. I don't even have sleeve tattoos, although I do have a rather luxuriant beard. Um, I actually, I quite like Blink-182 as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I would also add to that, um, Sing by My Chemical Romance. Oh, I mean, my, yeah, My Chemical <laughs> Romance. They've made a comeback, haven't they? Um, I I haven't noticed, because obviously I have to pretend to be much cooler now, <laughs> yeah. generally. I'm sure, I, I'm sure I heard them, a new single. 
But all uh, sorts of, you know, all sorts of, uh, like that kind of era of kind of emo yeah. bands that kind of disappeared and it's super uncool now, but I, I, I really like them, like Saves the Day, bands like that, you know. Yeah, I think they're, they're better than, than people necessarily give them credit for. I'm going to pick take that one as well, but I'm going to go with Never Forget. Classic, classic. So, that anything that's got that sort of gospel choiry bit at the end is uh, very. Um, and I also not as a karaoke song because I don't have the range for it. But Alana Miles, Black Velvet. Oh yeah. I can't, Which, I can't, how'd that go? Can you sing it? Hum it. Sing it. No, I'm not going to do either. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure the, the talented editor of this pod can insert a clip or something. Um, but it's, it's a really good for women who can sing. It's a brilliant karaoke song. I think right. you've got to have a forty-day habit for the last twenty years to be able to sing it properly, haven't you? To be fair, that is actually true for me. Anyway, it's just that I I, I sing very much as a baritone. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, right. Well, you just finished writing a book, haven't you, James? I, I honestly thought it was out in the next few weeks, but it's knocked me out for a while. It's called the Billionaires Club, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be out. If the lawyers approve it, uh, which is <laughs> where, where we're at at the moment, is uh, yeah going to be uh, before the season starts next year. Okay, so do you want so, a brief synopsis of that? Yeah, so the Billionaires Club is kind of it's a book about the super rich in football, and it's something I've always been interested in in not not just in football but in in the world about how you know there's massive I mean growing inequality um, you have well I mean that's a controversial point to put out there but I think many progressive thinkers think there is that there is growing inequality and that's what's brought us to the some of the issues that we've had in kind of developed western societies like the election of trump and uh brexit in particular and and so this kind of this class of people have started investing heavily in in football and i want to know who they were and where they made their money from because often where where their money comes from is is quite uh, controversial um you know smothered in kind of rights abuses um they're often they could be despots they could be oligarchs they could be plutocrats you know they've got a, they've got a history of where their money came from which is not necessarily uh, positive um but when it comes to then it come it kind of comes into football um all of that is forgotten and so when uh, roman abramovich took over chelsea in 2003 he was seen as this mysterious character who you know had made his money in 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 kind of post soviet capitalism and yeah it was a bit dodgy but he's you know there was a, there was a kind of a reputation laundering going on and i wanted to find out you know, kind of a little bit more about who they were where they made their money from and why they did it so i've, I've kind of traveled around the world going to places and speaking to not necessarily chasing the documents or the money but chasing the people speaking to the people who have lost out uh, in these in these regimes and these places and, I mean, the starting point, I think, for me was necessarily where, where the idea for the book came from is I lived in the UAE for a long while in the United Arab Emirates. And that's where I was writing When Friday Comes, my first book. And when it came out in 2008, the Sheikh Mansour bought Manchester City and suddenly they were the richest football club in the world. Um, and I knew a little bit about politics in, in the UAE and, and about the royal families there and about kind of when we talk about the kafala system, uh, uh, the system of kind of worker 
sponsorship, which has led to such huge abuses in Qatar in particular, where it's been highlighted. But the UAE, I knew it was going on even worse there. And this is a guy who was, you know, a member of the royal family. He was a member of the government. He's one of the most powerful and influential people in that country. And for there to be no conversation about the fact where you have a country that is, you know, abusing workers. It has uh, a deteriorating right, human rights situation. You can't say what you like. Um, you can be arrested for tweeting, um, involved in all sorts of asymmetrical cyber warfare against people that are critical of the country abroad. You know, that I wanted to make a connection between the money that comes into football and what these people are doing in real life and to say, well, you know, where the game is headed is quite, I think it's quite troubling in the same way that if you buy, you know, a pair of jeans from, you know, a, a shop and you find out it's been made by a slave labor in Bangladesh, it's kind of, you, you, you start to re or I think many people would start to reconsider buying where they, uh, where they buy their jeans from and clubs are different. You can't really shop around and change. And I think what, you know, what I wanted to do is try, just try to highlight this, this link between these rich people super rich people in asia in uh in eastern europe in america in particular and and work out like you know how it's all connected and and what what the effect is going to be in the long term so i went to china i went to the u.s uh went to the middle east went to bangladesh to see you know to chart the kind of whole trail of the um of the migration from workers in villages all the way to kind of the building sites in qatar um so it's a yeah, it was kind of quite quite I mean quite dark, quite emotional at times. Um, and you know, I hope it's not going to get pulped because you you know you're writing about some of the most you know I mean some of the richest, most influential people in the world. Um, but I mean, everything is is kind of already public record of what they've done. So I, I just just kind of raise kind of awareness that this is happening. You know, and it's something that's kind of almost happening by stealth. If you know, with um, <clears throat> like you're saying with with football clubs, it, you can't really shop around. You know, yeah. if if you're, I I grew up near Southampton. They were my closest side, so I support them. Um, but at the same time, there's been uh, this sort of, and I I hate to use the expression against modern football, but the the formation of fan owned clubs or the breakaway of FC United of Manchester because of opposition to the Glazers. Yeah, do you think that? This is the sort of thing where just as people, consumers effectively force change for for companies like Nike and Gap in terms of their manufacturing process, that actually people might start to say, do you know what, we like the fact that our team has won the Premier League, but we are just not comfortable with the money where it's coming from. And so we are going to branch out on our own on the back of a general movement away from that sort of... um, uh, not oligarch, but but the the wealth that's come into football and the general yeah. distaste for that. Well, I think I think there's definitely a movement of fans. I mean, you see this with West Ham moving to the to the Olympic Stadium in particular. Um, you know, it, it's you know they're, they're asking questions. It's what is it worth? Is it worth this money? Is it worth chasing this success when you lose from the soul of your club? And um, I mean, I went to Portsmouth and spoke to the people there i mean they had like four owners in two years who'd all mm. passed the fit and proper person's <laughs> but the, the the issue there is whether fan ownership is scalable you know this is something that's, that works at the lower leagues and you know you had good fan kind of ownership percentage at swansea for instance well that's been diluted a little bit their power given that they've just been bought out by kind of america to american owners mm. um but the issue with this is that there was a time when 
you could you could say that okay we're going to break away we're going to set up our own club fans going to walk out and there'd be a financial penalty to the club for doing that because gate revenue was so important to the bottom line the difference is that now it's not important to the bottom line anymore television money is the biggest uh, a few years ago overtook as the biggest single source of income for football clubs in the premier league so what's more important is an international market an international brand Mm. And actually, fans through the gates, what they offer is a kind of show for the television, which is, look at this kind of working class football culture, look mm. at these songs, look at this kind of pageantry that you've got. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that makes great montage if, you've, if you're putting together a kind of highlights package for an Asian country. Mm. But what's, and what's it's, clear is, yeah, when, <coughs> when fans are coming in now, you know, this, you know, younger fans can't afford to go to games. Um, you know, it's, 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 demog- not, yeah. it's not like we're boycotting the coverage of football because Sky's, yeah, yeah Sky's not exactly got the core. The, 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 the general Murdoch empire has not got yeah. the best record either, but it doesn't stop people from watching Sky and paying a subscription to have well, access exactly. to live football. You know, that's it. But there's a difference between watching and consuming football, I think, because you enjoy the game, then being attached to a club and investing every Saturday, going and traveling to a place where you have a sense of community. Mm-hmm. And that that will disappear within football because there isn't a young there's a demographic time bomb in football because the younger generation cannot afford to go. You cannot afford to go with your mates if you're um you know, if, if you're from where I come from in Essex, you, can't, you couldn't go as kind of a group of 13-year-olds, you know, without booking in advance, turning up and buying a ticket. Actually, you might be able to do that in a big stadium, given <laughs> fans are stopping going, going but there. But you, you, could, you could for non-league. You could for non-league. So, like, this, so why is, is there not an encouragement of, you know, sort of older... And I'm not saying it's the responsibility of, of necessarily fans or even journalists or... But if, if and I, I agree with everything that you've said mm. so far, I'm, I'm curious as to why there's not more of a campaign to say, okay, you know, you can't afford to go and watch West Ham, but you can go to, I mean, I, you know, Clapton, for example. Yeah. Sort well, Clapton, of nearish. But that, that's kind of, I mean, you, 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 Clapton in particular have done that very well, I think. I mean, they've got this ultras movement, a kind of leftist ultras movement going on trying to encourage people that you know this is real football and if you you know you don't have to go to these games i mean part of the problem is i think with lower league football is they're kind of priced even they're pricing people out. i mean going to even a fourth or fifth tier game in england is still probably more expensive than going to kind of almost any top european league. plymouth argyle you know, is still just, 20 pound plus just for yourself let is, alone to take your kids as well utterly mm. ridiculous it'll cost you 100 quid to go to go i mean and portsmouth and own club is still that's still fairly expensive, kind of off the gate. Um, I mean, that's where I'd be concentrating. If I was a lower league club, that's where I'd be concentrating. I'm not sure why. Um, I guess there's also the culture of going to watch live football is kind of changing. There's a generation that's been lost that before this has really been talked about and decided, well, actually, this is a bit worrying the way that football's been going. How does that um, work out? And they've been Sorry, I was just going, how does that work out comparatively where you are? So, obviously the standard of football is lower with Red Star and Partizan, but do you still get groups of kids go in the same way that you, we did here all that time ago? We do, you certainly see it with the kind of ultras groups. You know, there is a kind of uh, steady growth of young people 
going into the grounds and they can afford to go and become part of something. I mean, that's not necessarily that's a positive thing. I mean, obviously, there's there's still instances of violence and kind of ultra nationalism involved when it comes to the kind of ultras within within football here. But I mean, the issue here, I think, is a little bit more that there isn't uh, coming because the level of football has deteriorated quite significantly, and that's because of the inequality and wealth that's happened within European football. And young players are gone before they're even 19, whereas before they would have stayed and brought up the quality of the league. And um, so the issue is mainly that that, uh, that there is a, that it, young people are going, but nobody else is going. So there's you have these ultras groups, but they're they're mainly playing, in fact, in pretty empty stadiums most of the time. Um, so I mean, I wouldn't say that this is a model. For, for for Britain at all, or for English football at all, but I would say that um, that, that 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 it's pricing out um, the English football is pricing out people that are the very it's it's, it's it's root. What what television companies I think, and what the Premier League is selling is a is a um, a view of football as this you know very songs camaraderie kind of passion, and that's being and that that involves kind of a local I think connection to your club that is nurtured from birth and is something that then becomes something that you've had <laughs> 10 years of before you're 15 and then it becomes something that's much more than just a football club and you, you can't you can't build that from scratch you can't that's something that it takes takes years and years and years to build um and then eventually there's going to be a moment where and you see it already with atmosphere in premier league grounds i mean it's the singing's less uh, standing up is less kind of accepted um i think bringing back uh, safe or bringing safe standing to English football, I think, could be an answer to that. But only if it's at the same time made cheap for people to have. So it will cost you ten pounds to have a safe standing seat at an English Premier League game. That could revolutionise the, the, the type of people that come to football and bring back some of that kind of atmosphere and passion and something that, in the end, you know, TV companies need to sell their pro- product abroad because there's going to be a point when then football is so anodyne, it's going to be so dull uh, that that the atmosphere will be gone and it and it, it will be impossible to come back and they're in danger of killing kind of the goose that, go- that lay the golden egg. Do you think we're at a point now where if we don't change things, particularly in the upper echelons of the game, we could be heading towards a Serie A situation? Where yeah, we, we, gates critical, are incredibly yeah. low, and 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 what what would you suggest needs to be done to get us back to more of a kind of Bundesliga situation where grounds are packed out, there are you know tifo displays, there is that very much that sense of of camaraderie and fan engagement that like I, I agree with you, the Premier League seems to be lacking. Well, I'm not we, sure if we do get a Serie A situation. Do we? Does that yeah. mean that we can sign Donnarumma for Liverpool? well i don't think it'll be quite as bad as syria i mean i think i saw some figures the other day that lazio's stadium um you know the the percentage of lazio stadium that's filled on any weekdays on any match days like 24 percent like criminally low i don't think the the issue is boycotting at the moment aren't they well they are but there's but uh, you know there's the problem is when you have a very strong ultras movement usually that means you you know Normal fans, let's say, normal fans, fans that just, you know, want to come with their kids or whatever, tend not to go. Um, I mean, we saw that with, with hooliganism in, in English football um, in the 80s in particular. Like, you just wouldn't go because it's just not an atmosphere you want to take your kids to. Um, but the issue isn't that the people won't go to English games. What will happen is that the kind of 
it's a it's a it's a product for tourists for people who want to dip in and out of something they want to sit there and watch something there's nothing wrong with that absolutely but if you have a stadium full of that then you know and especially for the big teams that won't be a problem selling those tickets um but the issue is going to be that there's going to be a time when football in 10 years time will resent nothing to the past where that kind of atmosphere and that kind of aesthetic which people sell is, is, is kind of what football is based on but, but I, I, I think change that, it sorry I, I think that only applies to a small number of clubs though because i mean i, I used to police arsenal yeah. games and that was definitely the case there mm. and if you're if you're arsenal chelsea man united yeah. liverpool then liverpool. certainly they are they are tourist destination clubs but that's yeah. never going to be the case with Stoke, Stoke, yeah. Norwich, Southampton, it, it, even like it, it, Palace have it, a lot of fans flying flags, yeah. and things like that, don't they? They do. They have uh, they have the, the, the black clad orchards. But I think what it's it's going to spread, you know, as the popularity of the Premier League grows. I think it, I mean there doesn't seem to be any. If you're looking at the TV deals, I mean viewer figures actually this year for the first time have shown a troubling uh, drop especially in Britain, the amount of people that are watching it. But abroad, there seems to be an insatiable appetite for it. And I think that that will spread. I mean, they're obviously, you know, London clubs, big metropolitan centres. I mean, that's where you're going to have um, kind of the tourists kind of model kind of works a lot better. Um, but in a way, it won't matter so much if you're earning so much from television money. Mm. I mean, of course, maybe tickets will go down to get more kids in. Maybe they won't. Maybe they don't need to. Maybe they don't need to make the effort because there's so much money that's coming through television. But the issue, what needs to happen isn't just low ticket prices. I think it needs to, I think, I think safe standing is a really key element to changing kind of the way kind of football is, is watched and the kind of community that you can build around a football club. But it's also, you need, you need to have, what, what works in Germany is that clubs work for the fans. They have this 50 plus one model, which means, I mean, I know there are some exceptions with teams like Wolfsburg that have kind of corporate ownership structures, <laughs> but they have, you know, they have no choice but to work in the interest of the fans. And you need to have strong fan representation at the board level to make sure that, okay, yeah, it's great that we're signed up to, you know, you, we've got a kind of Asian oil uh, company uh, with a, you know, official oil company of our club, but we need to keep these prices down here. We need to have away tickets set at a certain price. We need free transport to away games, you know, those kind of things. Uh, so it's not, it's not just a question of money, which I think is, is very important. It's also a question of the, the kind of stadiums that we have, and it's also a question of what kind of representation do fans have that actually genuinely have power within a boardroom to make decisions and make, or, or to, to force the people that own clubs to really take them seriously. And it's those three things I think that, that need to need to change or, you know, football is going to go down a very kind of mm. difficult path. I think for anybody who's loved it and, and loved the club in it, 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 it's connected to a club in any way. Because but, those, those fans, if they're not brought in, then what you see is responses like there have been at, at Blackpool and Coventry recently. Yeah. And I have, complete sympathy with with the fans yeah. of those two clubs but Charlton not, too, I mean right having not been brought in and had things discussed with them now the action that they're taking is having to tend towards more of an ultras response of either boycotting or walking onto the pitch or you know that sort of 
it's not the sort of action that any fan would legitimately want to take, but no. because there's no engagement, then they're left thinking, well, this is our club and these guys have come in and run it terribly for five, ten years. And, yeah. and, you know, the club is now dying. Those three clubs are dying. Yeah. There's, there's and, no and that's other question about that. Yeah, that's a legitimate form of protest. I, I, I have no Completely. problem yeah. with people pr- protesting. Um, and sometimes, you know, I mean, yeah, if you, you know, want to make an omelette, you've got to break eggs. And if, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who tell getting fans on the pitch is back to the bad old days. But, you know, sometimes you need to protest and it's a democratic oh, they're, And they're not, they're, they're not protesting violently either. No, you know, no, they're, that's they're, it. they're not, they're not stepping over the edge whatsoever. They are, they're protesting responsibly, but, but they've been left with so few options otherwise, yeah. you know, legitimate campaigns appealing to the Football League, all of those things have failed time and again. So what else are they able to do? You know, and, it, and they've shown the football authorities, I mean, not just the Premier League, but in the, in the Football League as well, you know, not to really listen, mm. uh, not to really listen, rubber stamping kind of organisations. I mean, if you, I mean, I mentioned Portsmouth earlier and talking about the ownership of Portsmouth which changed hands I think four times in two years each yeah. one of them you know rubber stamped fit and proper you know these guys are fine they can come in run your club you know one of them I talked to people at Portsmouth they're not even sure if that guy even existed Ali <laughs> Al-Faraj nobody ever saw him no one's ever seen him there's no picture of him the only time they had anything was uh, they, uh, I spoke to one of the guys who sat the supporters trust there uh, they got given a black and white facts of a grainy passport that was it there's no so how, if they can't find out whether this guy is even like an algorithm how the hell can the football league mm. say yeah this guy's fit and proper he can own the club but if you're you know really- i mean completely deaf to, to not just fans concerns but the people who have kind of years and years of knowledge about financial matters in the world deaf yeah. to theirs too but if you're a Chelsea fan or a Manchester City fan and your team is winning the Premier League and you've got a manager like Guardiola and you've or yeah. Conte there, you're wearing jeans that are made in China in whatever sweatshop. And yeah. 2011, we had riots in London. And what did people do? They went and nicked TVs that were made in China. This is a sort of consumerist world in which we live. Why would they, why would they be interested in the ethics of their team owners so long as they're winning and still getting the, the same bread and circuses? Well, I mean, this is... I guess this is one of the things that I've always found difficult with, with anything, with football, whether it's football clubs, whether it's where you buy your clothes, is that we should care where it comes from. Because when we don't care, that's when the world becomes a very, very dark place. You know, that's how we perpetuate um, all the bad things that we see that are happening, not just in football, but in the world. And it's very difficult with football clubs because they're so wedded uh, to our kind of psyche and because we've invested so much into them. When you start saying, well, listen, guys, this is, you know, this guy is a human rights abuser of a huge, you know, on a on an industrial scale. Or you say, this guy made the money in a, in a kind of very violent part of this country's history and we don't know enough about him. When, when you say those things, you, you get attacked. The messenger gets attacked because you're questioning not just, you know, not just the owner, but their club and their soul. And it's, I think, it's, sorry, what were you? I just it, it, it's it's very difficult to make that case, but I think it is it's very important to try. And maybe I mean I'm so, I don't think I'm going to convince any Manchester City fans or Chelsea fans or you know any fans of any of the clubs, Ardo Den Haag fans who I've written you know written about um, for this book. But um, we've got to try because if you don't shine a light on who these people are, then I mean they can they can act with impunity. And look I at think, what, yeah. 
there's it's interesting as well because I think you know that there, there, there are journalists such as yourself um, and also the the people that wrote the book about Qatar's bid for the World Cup yeah. um, who are looking into this kind of stuff but generally and I, and this is a sweeping generalization that actually excludes you and me but the sort of people <laughs> the sort of people that are interested in football tend not to be the sort of people who are on Twitter talking about social justice more generally. You know, there, no, there I, isn't, I, I disagree with that. I think I disagree really? with that. And I think with Brexit, I think we can, we can, people are politically engaged. We might not agree with the politics of it or, you know, they have political views and they have views about the world. Um, we, a lot of them I might not agree with, but to say that they, they don't have a kind of idea about what's going on in the world, I think is right. It's, that's not right. They do no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they don't have an idea, but I, I'm saying that, that generally speaking, the sort of the kind of core groups that we're talking about who are interested in football as, as kind of proper fans, shall we say, um, slightly murky term, but yeah, they, or, or, okay, turn it on its head. The people that I see on my timeline regularly talking about about social justice, about change, about campaigns, whether it's, I don't know, Black Lives Matter or it's the 99%, that kind of stuff. These are not people naturally that are that interested in sport as a generality. And and I, I wonder if there's some sort of way of, of harnessing that and saying, look, you know, these, these are issues that apply not just to other consumer points or to the rise of the right in, in Europe or the US or whatever, you know, the, you can but these aren't can, is it, but these aren't social justice issues these aren't like we're not talking about i'm not coming from this perspective from the left or from the right i'm talking about for instance in america um, one of the uh, one of the, 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 the section on the u.s and the u.s investment that's coming into into english and european football focuses on stan Kroenke and focuses on st louis and what's happened when uh their their club's have been moved their franchises have been moved and what's happened to the teams when they've been left behind and the big issue in the US is about stadium ownership and mm. massive subsidies for stadium owners like these are some of the richest men in the world and they demand billions sometimes billions of dollars of state subsidies uh, so that they keep their clubs there and it's a kind of form of form of blackmail that's going on now that isn't a left social justice issue or a right wing um, nanny state issue this is something about kind of government spending being misused it's something that both sides can agree on on the yeah, left saying these guys these guys don't need to have uh these guys don't need to have like huge huge uh, subsidies from the government on the other side it's, it's massive state intervention which is what both sides agree on whether you're left whether you're right whether you're engaged or whether you're not oh, you know, those that, are huge... i totally agree with that but if you're looking at something like qatar and human rights abuses or um russian oligarchs who may or may not have committed criminal offences during yeah. the breakup of the Soviet Union. That is much more of a social justice issue. What, what you're saying is the source of the money that's coming into football clubs yeah. is pretty dark. Yeah. That, that, that to me, is that sort of issue. It, it's much harder to, to say, to, to make a kind of more nebulous point about, you know, what well, the soul of your club is being affected because of foreign ownership. It's more concrete to say and that ownership derives its wealth from human rights abuses i mean when when you think about kind of how the issue of qatar and the worker rights issues has exploded in the uk really in the past few years and across the world that isn't just amongst 
and of social justice warriors. That's working people. You know, that's working class people who have, you know, that's the sun has covered that intensively. Um, the mail have gone mm-hmm. crazy on it. Uh, the Express, you know, the, the media that kind of people like my dad would read, you know, and they're enraged by it. So it is, it, this isn't, I don't think this is something that you can say, well, football fans um, who support their club will probably, you know, probably won't be interested in those issues. They are. They are ah, interested in those issues. Sorry, I'm not and saying are, that I'm and they're not angry saying they're about interested. It. What mm. I'm saying is that it doesn't appear to be translating into any kind of action or comment. That's well, not my point. Do you think anyone will I mean, boycott the, the Qatar World Cup, like, i.e. not watch it because of human rights issues? I mean, they may do. I mean, I think there's slightly the fact that it's there and they view it as potentially kind of corrupt, although I don't think there's any evidence that the buying of it is particularly, uh, there's been any kind of cash changing hands. I think it's much more nebulous than that. And there could be people that, 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 would, that will boycott it and not watch it because of those issues. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I, but I wouldn't. Well, maybe not, but... For, for a lot of people, I think that the Qatar World Cup... I, mean, I, I think I, I was actually quite positive about the Qatar World Cup when they got it originally. Because um, why shouldn't the Middle East have... I mean, this is some, I'm somebody who's lived and worked in the Middle East, and I've, I've reported on Qatar quite a lot. And I think the reality of Qatar is actually very different to what a lot of people have written about um, in terms of its reformist um, agenda, which I think is much more further ahead than Saudi Arabia or the UAE, for instance, which gets a kind of completely free pass. Mm. Um, but I think there will be people that, can, that, that, that will boycott it um, if, if um, a World Cup exists in 2022. You know, we'll see what happens with the Russian World Cup. But, I mean, you know, this talk of expansion. There's a, international football, too. I mean, when I was writing 31-0, it was kind of like a love letter to international football because people, especially in Britain, uh, th- their appreciation of it is completely changing. Mm. And you can see a time not so long ago where, where FIFA will break the World Cup if they keep meddling with it and changing the format and turning it into something very different, given how powerful club football is now and talking about breakaway leagues, breakaway Champions Leagues and these kind of things. So I I can see people turning away from Qatar 2022, not just because of the issue of worker rights, not just because of the issue of corruption or alleged corruption, but for a whole host of reasons that where kind of the governance of football and international football is heading, which isn't a positive place either. But an expansion of teams presumably would would be beneficial to nations like Kosovo, for example, to yeah. to increase the likelihood of. So I I, I mean I I've seen I've seen arguments for an expansion of teams. I've I mean, also that, this seen. Isn't, this isn't me saying that I necessarily disagree or agree with it. I'm saying this is how I always think of like the canary in my in the mind for me is my dad. You know, lifelong football fan came from, you know, working class background in East London, still, still, you know, loves West Ham, mm. how he consumes and views football and how he sees things are changing. And, you know, he's losing interest in international football. And that's kind of where I got my love from it from. You know, he loved, you know, the, but, the tournaments and the kind of history of all of that. Um, but is this not a kind of an, a sort of, um, ah, there's a word for it and I can't think of the word. Anecdotal? No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't mean that. I just mean in the sense of if, if, if you ask... You know, say say you ask people, um, is is a a a particular name a common name? If it's not a Western one, we'll say no. You know, if yeah. it, if it's an Indian one, it might actually be numerically more common than my name. But my initial reaction would be to go, no, it's not a common name. You know, if 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 international football might lose 
some of its Western audience with this sort of expansion, but then have masses of fans from China or India or, or small nations who've not necessarily had the opportunity to qualify before. Yeah. Is that, is I mean, that such a bad thing? I mean, I, I, yeah, it's great that more people are interested in football and there'll be, there'll be bigger audiences around the world. I think it'd be a shame if Western Europe kind of zones out of it, you know, because at the moment this is where the best teams in the world are from, or, or most of the majority of the best teams in the world are from this, this part of the world. Mm. Um, and it'd be a shame for them to lose interest in it, you know, and I, I, there is, I think there's a case for some expansion. Um, you know, we saw the Euros. I thought that was, a, I thought that was, showed how successful it is, how much longer the, the qualification, I mean, in a way, I think the qualification was almost better than the, the tournament itself because it showed that there's much more interest longer and deeper into qualification because mm-hmm. there was the chance for almost anybody to, to really right up to the last couple of game weeks to get somewhere, to get some kind of position in that group. So yeah. I think that there is there is some kind of I, I, I'm not sure if you know a, 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 a tournament approaching 50 teams is feasible. Uh, is anything that any anybody really wants, and I'm not no. sure how much good it's going to do. I, I, I think um, Jonathan Wilson put forward the idea of of actually expanding qualification massively, which is great. I mean, he wrote, I then, remember the Blizzard having, did a yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's a much more sensible argument. Having international, like having, I mean, we only see it really with qualification with, at the end with the intercontinental playoffs. But having a kind of, I mean, the only issue would be resources, um, you know, but the television audiences for FIFA would be, would be huge. If you had intercontinental qualifications, um, you know, I mean, you could start it first of all by kind of, you know, North America and South America being, being joined together, Asia, Oceania in particular. Mm. Um, you could, you could, I mean, it would be. I think there'd be a lot of interest in that, and I think that would be. That's a, that's a that's a great idea. But I mean, that's not even being discussed. It's not even on the table for FIFA uh, for something like that, uh, which is a shame. I think that for me, I mean, qualification. I mean, I would say this as somebody who's written a book about World Cup qualifications. So of course, I'd say this um, is is often far more interesting, and the stories are far more interesting than the actual tournament itself. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you entirely on that. And I'd say the same about reporting on those as well. Qualification is much more interesting to report on than going to a tournament and reporting on, which is can be can be quite. I mean, it's exciting I and mean, it's interesting to be there, but you don't quite get the access or the stories or, um, or, or or kind of the intimacy that you get with a tournament. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so that's the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, sounds good. We'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, can I just say, how close did you get to any of these people you were reporting on? Um, very, uh, I mean, they're almost impossible to get to. Uh, and I knew that when I pitched the book originally. Like, I'm, I'm not going to get to speak to Roman Bramovich. I'm not going to get to speak to, uh, you know, the premier of China. You know, where ultimately all, all roads lead to, you know, to, to the premier because he's the guy who's kind of pushing this kind of football revolution. Um, I did get to speak to many, uh, to Taxi Shinawatra. Um, I tracked him down in Paris to ask him about some, uh, you know, why he brought Manchester City, what was, you know, because he was the one guy who was actually kind of pushed out because of human rights issues. Uh, I, I mean, actually, probably wasn't quite the ogre that he was painted in the British press, um, which is kind of interesting. So it was, it was, it was, 
I knew from the beginning that I wouldn't get that close to a lot of these people. Um, Stan Kroenke is notoriously a closed book. Um, they said no. Uh, J.W. Henry, he said, I mean, he thought about it for a little while. Um, but for me, it was about the people's. It's kind of people's history. You know, football clubs. Uh, if you want to understand about what's happening with Chinese ownership, spend time with the football fans of Ardo Den Haag, who are one of the early adopters of the Chinese owner, and it's gone very badly, for instance. Um, you know, speak to the, if you want to know where all the wealth comes from Manchester City, speak to the workers who have their rights impinged on a kind of daily basis. So it, it was it was looking at the cause and effect, or kind of the effect, I guess. Have any fans of these clubs come to you in, either on social media or that you've met going to the games? Um, investigate it. Sort of ask why are you asking these questions. Why are you interfering? Can't yeah, you... I mean spe- specifically Manchester City fans yeah. have been <laughs> angry with me. Um, and, and there's there's one kind of incident, and I think it was a, 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 a Twitter storm a few months ago, kind of last year I think, where I was writing, well, you know, this is happening in Qatar. There's a lot of interest in what's happening in Qatar, but why is there no interest in what's happening with the owners of? Manchester City because I mean these guys are also part of a political system there where Kafala uh, runs and in some cases when I speak to when I've spoken over the years with workers in Qatar and elsewhere in the Gulf they've said thank God we're here and we're not in Abu Dhabi um, which is seen as somewhere where you're treated much worse than Qatar um, you know I mean it's just abuse so um, and in particular and then they, they kind of pull up one of because it was like four tweets in a row and they pull up one of the tweets and says, oh, this guy thinks that the, the Abu Dhabi's in Qatar. Look what an idiot he is. And then everybody jumps on that. And so, so in their eyes, I'm discredited because I don't know where Abu Dhabi is. Um, and uh, falsely, of course. So, yeah, I do, I do get that. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I guess, I probably get a few fans not, not that happy with the fact that I'm concentrating their clubs. And they'll say, well, why haven't you written more about West Ham? Or why have you not written more about Tottenham? Or... Uh, well, I've not read about that, but that's just the nature of what we. I mean, this, this is a very tribal business that we're in, and you know, you're going to up, you're going to upset people. But I mean, I hope there's enough in there to say to to, to prick people's interest in in what happens, you know, outside of kind of the press releases we get about the great things that these owners and this money is doing, because you know, often behind the scenes, there's there's a far darker story. Do you think? Do you see yourself as a campaigning journalist? No. No, I certainly don't see myself that. I think because I think that's an oxymoron. I don't, you can't be a kind of campaigning journalist. You're not a journalist in many respects. You know, I mean, I, I appreciate the word that activists do, and I think mm. they do some great work. And they endanger themselves, put themselves in the line of fire. But a journalist has to, you know, has to uncover things, uh, and and I think have. I mean, there's there's often the idea that there's too much balance in journalism, and I can agree with that in some respects. I mean, you know, it's often given the the, the Example of well, if you if you were liberating the death camps in Nazi Germany, would you would you would you give equal weight to the prison camp guard to say why he was doing it? You know, I mean, it'd be interesting to speak to him to find out you know what what his experience of it was. But mm. no, you know, this is sometimes when there is something that you see that is wrong, you know, you you have to you have to expose it or at least kind of write about it or try to find out what the truth is about it. Mm. And then you know, then then you ask them, you know, well, why are you doing this? And the problem is with many of these owners is they're they're just not interested in in any kind of interaction with anybody their their modus operandi is absolute secrecy i mean um roman Abramovich hasn't given an interview since 2006 um and before that i think he got, yeah, he's only given two in his life mm. so um yeah i wouldn't say campaigning journalist uh mm. because i don't think i don't think you can i think you can be a journalist and campaign something i think you can have an in, like a, an area that you write about 
that you know intimately that you can report on which exposes lots of stuff. But that, I don't think that makes you campaigning. It just makes you an expert in a field. Have you really seen the um, David Brailsford in front of the Parliamentary Select Committee this week? No, I didn't watch it. In fact, funny yeah. enough, they don't have it streamed live in Belgrade. I actually no, <laughs> oh, do it online, don't they? Yeah, so I watched, the, I watched um, so Mike Ashley it. get eviscerated in, the, well, in a cafe. Run. They were obviously brought up because of alleged sort of doping wrongdoings with Team Sky and everything. And then you had the, um, the Irish journalist David Walsh, who helped bring down Lance Armstrong, who spent three months inside Team Sky. He's now facing yeah. accusations that he got a little too close and either didn't ask the right questions or was a bit naive or something like that. Would you embed yourself with Roman Abramovich if he asked you to, or would you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But you've got to. I mean, there's always the issue, and this is the same with regulators or um, you know any kind of form of business. Really, is capture is that you get involved and you get too close, and then you become you know part of the team, and you can't write about it objectively. But that is the absolute core skill that you've got to have as a journalist. Is that if you? I mean, I'm all about. But, 90% of what I want to do is go somewhere and embed myself with people and be there for as long as I possibly can before they kick me out. And, you know, <laughs> it, it's not, it's, I'm not going to not write something because I like them. You know, I'll write whatever the truth is. And um, I hope that, I mean, that's obviously often when you, when you go and do a story or a book or, um, you know, you have a few months with someone, you know, they'll ask questions like, well, you know, obviously I want to read what you've written beforehand. I want copy approval. Uh, oh, don't take that out. Take that out. They'll know up front that there is none of that. You know, I can't do that. I mean, it, for one, I mean, if you agree to copy approval, you can't write for the New York Times because you've got, uh, there's a, there's an ethics contract that you've got to sign that says that there are certain things that you, cut, that you, that you uphold. And one of those is, is copy approval is absolutely, I think, I think maybe Obama, uh, uh, President Obama, once asked for put coffee approval. I think it's the only time they granted it. But you can't, you can't do that. I think that might be the New Yorker, actually, not the New York Times. But um, yeah, as soon as you do that, it's a slippery slope. I think, and I, I would absolutely love to spend three months following Roman Abramovich around. But it certainly would not be hagiography. It certainly wouldn't be overwhelmingly positive. I mean, and maybe, maybe it is. Maybe I'd see another side of it. Maybe that would come out of it. Maybe he would tell me that everything's been written about him is this kind of fog of lies that's been created by business, uh, you know, and, and it's, it stands up to scrutiny. Who knows? But you know, all I know is that I would go in there and I would not. Uh, I, I would try and keep myself as separate in my mind as I could do, whilst observing everything that happened around me. And that's 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 what it's about. Hmm. Um, well, look, we're going to wrap this up, unfortunately, but. Um, this book is out in it's, you said summer next year, isn't it? Have you got anything yeah, in week. mind next? Is there another book on the horizon? Yeah, I think the the, the next one will be uh, about the Kosovo team um, and their first ever World Cup qualification campaign. I hope uh, that we're still talking talks about that. But I mean, that's I've spent a lot of time with them, seeing them, you know, get to where they are now. is, is just it's just a wonderful story and. Um, and I, not just I want to tell the story of Kosovo from Kosovo Albanians, but also from the Serbian, 5% of the Serbian population uh, that live in Kosovo and very much feel separate and don't feel like they have any stake in the future Kosovan state. And uh, I, I recently did a New York Times story about a, a football club called Trebcha, which is an old, used to be in the old Yugoslav first division for one season. Um, we're in the cup final, Marshall Tita cup final, I think in 1978. Um, and they're from Mitrovica, which is a kind of divided city, now divided city in the north of the country. And there's literally a river that runs through the city. The Serbs are in the north, the Kosovars in the south. And the north 
want to be part of Serbia and, and, you know, you can pay with dinars there rather than euros in the south and all that kind of stuff. And there was this football club and, you know, when the Kosovo War uh, took place, 98-99, it split. And so you had, you know, a, a trebature in the south and a trebature in the north. And these two clubs now live, you know, they, they both say that they're the original trebature from 1932 um, and have the history and the, they wear the same same green and black kit. They have the same badge, except, of course, one's written in Albanian, one's written in Cyrillic. Um, and they'll never, they'll, these two clubs will never join each other or play each other. But telling their story, you, you understand that there is a Serbian community there that, that, that feels that it's been kind of like left, that kind of hung out to dry in a way. So I want to tell the story of, of kind of Kosovo and, and all its people through, through its football team um, and, and the people who don't want to be part of its football team as well. So, um, so I hope that'll be the next one. Fingers crossed. That was in the New York Times, wasn't it? I remember reading that. That was the New York Times a few weeks ago, yeah. Yes, excellent. Well, look, we're going to bring this to an end, unfortunately, but thank you ever so much. This has been absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure the listeners will agree. Um, you can download this from uh, the, either the World Football Index, which Manor Post is now part of. Um, you can get all sorts of podcasts on there from uh, different leagues in Europe and South America and North America as well. Um, there'll be a Man of the Post podcast next week it's Christmas so I don't think there'll be one this week at Man of the Post is the uh, Twitter handle <coughs> Alex if they want to follow you how do they do that it's at AFH Stuart with an EW James if they want to follow you how do they do that uh, at James Pioch I mean for some reason I've got a complicated uh, handle <laughs> J-A-M-E-S-P-I-O-T-R when I, when, I, when I had my Twitter account I remember I thought they were asking me for my, my first name and middle name. And it turned out that was my handle. So I've just been stuck with it <laughs> since. So, um, so James Piotra. But uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And Merry Christmas. Yeah. Merry Christmas to you too. Thank you ever so much. Thank you, Alex, as well. No, it was very enjoyable. Super. And always remember to keep your man on the post. Mm-hmm.